Good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Just about to wrap up this amazing epistle. We're on approach and getting ready to land it. We, we hope. <laughs> what goes up must come down, so we hope to have a nice three-point landing and taxi into the terminal. Jump on the Philemon Airlines next. <laughs> That's where we're headed. If you want to know, there you know. It only makes sense, I think, to continue with that and wrap up Paul's exhortations to this congregation in Colossae by looking at Philemon as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll, uh, we'll get into these passages this morning. Lord, we love you. Thank you for our time today to be together as the redeemed of Christ. It's such a joy and privilege. May we treasure it as much as you do. You have seen fit to bring us together in this manner. Uh, and this method, you have ordained it, and as you're redeemed, we should cherish it as you do. Forgive us for not doing that. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us with the presence of your Spirit today. Help us to understand what you have for us. We are told that all of Scripture is given by inspiration, is profitable for a variety of things, instruction, correction, discipline, reproof, growth, sanctification. May we glean from these passages here at the end of Colossians what you would like us to know and to understand um, about the ministry that Paul had in Colossae and those who were associated with him. These are people that you have given to us and preserved through the ages for us to know about, so there is something significant about the fact that they're here. So help us to understand the purpose behind these passages. And may we be blessed by reflecting on their testimony and their lives and the fact that they were lovers of Christ and gave so much to serve him. Thank you, Lord, for the word that you have graciously given to us. Thank you for preserving it and keeping it. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 4, let's begin with verse 2, and let's just read to the end of the chapter. Devote yourself to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant, and the Lord will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice, 
These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, remembering my imprisonment. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Well, as we noted the last time we were together in this passage, Paul here is taking the time to recognize and remember and to encourage others to remember those who are engaged in the gospel ministry with him. These are gospel partners, people who have made sacrifices of time and position and life to help Paul accomplish the ministry of the gospel um, in a variety of areas. We're going to look at some of the individuals that Paul notes here, in particular in verses 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, perhaps today. We'll get through some of that, but not all of it. Um, Verse 9, Paul speaks to uh, Onesimus, who we know quite well already from our earlier consideration of the passage in chapter 3 with regard to slaves and things of that nature. We touched on the fact that Onesimus was a slave of Philemon, He was the stealing slave. He stole money from Philemon and then fled, and then through God's providence, the great mystery of that ended up in Rome where Paul was and somehow became connected with Paul and through Paul's witness to him was saved and then ultimately became the courier of this letter and others back to the church in Colossae and Ephesus and Laodicea um, and Heropolis as well. And so he and Tychicus took these letters back from Paul and delivered them, which is quite remarkable when you think about it. And when you think about how that worked out, I mean, that's hard to even make up um, in the context of a story. That's quite remarkable when you think about it. We're not going to spend any more time on Onesimus because in the book of Philemon, um, that letter is directed towards Philemon in regards to his dealings with Onesimus, and so we're going to be talking more about him there, Lord willing, when we get to that particular epistle. I wanted to move into verse 10 today. Um, and others as we continue to consider um, the lives of these important people that were engaged in the ministry with Paul. There are many, of course, that are noted here, and we need to know who they are. You know, I think it's remarkable, and I hope that you find it to be as remarkable as I do, that these names have been preserved for us. Why? I mean, you could have ended the epistle with verse 6. That's it. Or verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, remember my imprisonment, grace be with you. End of story. But we have a whole cast of characters, some 12 or 13 individuals, a church that's noted as well, and there's a reason behind all of this. And I think it's significant for us to take away from this the fact that that God values the service of the faithful. He really does. Um, I think oftentimes we have a somewhat diminished view of how God sees us 
in the context of gospel opportunity and ministry, but certainly these people are important enough that for all of history, from this point in time when this was written forward, these names are preserved for us. And we ought to know about them and understand who they are. We're going to meet them someday in heaven. It would be nice to kind of have an advance uh, uh, information about them so we can walk up to them and say, I read about you in, in the book of Colossians. Uh, Tychicus, I had a hard time pronouncing your name at first, but I figured it out, and so nice to meet you. And uh, hey, Mark, how are you doing? And you're Barnabas' cousin. I, that's really neat. And, and the rest of them, and uh, the, the, the folks who are at this lady's house, uh, Nympha, hi, how are you doing? I read about you, and tell me about what that was like, and what was it like to have that church there, and what was going on, and what happened to that church? Uh, things of that nature that we will be able to do. So we need to understand who these folks are. Well, Aristarchus, uh, or Aristarchus rather, is an important person. Um, we find here in verse 10 that Paul now sends greetings from six individuals. These are folks who are passing on their information through Paul to this congregation. They want to extend uh, salutations and greetings, which I think is significant. They value these believers in Colossae. Um, so much so that through this epistle, Paul is communicating on their behalf to these believers these salutations and greetings, and Paul gives us a little information about them as well. What we find here is that in this passage here in the beginning of verse 10 through verse 14 is that we have six individuals, um, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justus, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas, three Jews and three Gentiles. This is significant. Three Jews and three Gentiles. Um, is there any significance in the number? Am I going to tell you that three and three equals six and that somehow in the Bible the numerology indicates something? No, it doesn't. It means that there were six, of, six people here passing on their salutations to these folks. But it is interesting the fact that we have Gentiles and Jews alike. And as we know, Paul said earlier in the book of Colossians that there's now no distinctions. There's, no, there's none of that going on. And so you have Christians who are passing on their salutations to these other Christians in the church in Colossae. I think it's significant that you have the Gentiles saved out of paganism. You have the Jews saved out of Judaism, um, both bound into ritualistic approaches to righteousness, self-righteousness, works-based types, religions, or no religion at all for that matter. And here we have them now sending on greetings to other Christians. That's significant. That's quite significant. We have trophies of grace in these passages. People who have been saved according to God's sovereign purpose, foreordained before the foundation of the world, who God called to himself, and now in the context of their salvation, reach out to other believers to say to them, greetings, salutations, how are you doing? We know about you, we care about you, and I want to say hello to you. I think that's really quite remarkable for us to keep in mind. It's interesting, too, that for some reason in this letter, Paul creates this list as much more extensive than we find in other epistles. We'll find in Philemon verses 23 and 24 some references to these persons again. Um, Romans 16 has a rather lengthy list as well, but here in Colossians we have an extensive list of salutations um, and greetings. And I think another reason for that is that Paul wanted to encourage 
these believers. They had been under a lot of stress, a lot of strain with the false teacher in their midst. A lot had been going on, a lot of challenges that were unique. A lot of error had crept in. There were probably some level of division or dissension. We understand that we have the issue with Onesimus and Philemon going on. There's a lot happening in this little church in Colossae. There's a lot of things happening with these people between each other and with others. And so to be encouraged by others that you perhaps have never met, they haven't met these folks other than Epaphras. Paul had not been there yet, and it's doubtful that he ever did get there. And so you have these people saying to them, we know about you, we care about you, we love you, and we want to send you our greetings and to encourage you in the Lord. We are too engaged in gospel ministry. You are not alone. We are here too. And I think that's something that is an encouragement even to me today and to you as well, um, that these folks would be engaged in that type of effort. Well, Aristarchus um, here is noted in verse 10. Paul says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. So let's talk about this, this chap, Aristarchus. Kind of a neat name. I like that. Maybe I should name a horse that. I don't know. That's kind of neat. Who's you? Aristarchus, my horse. Kind of a, like something you would find in Ben-Hur, perhaps. You know, I don't, I don't know. I think I am going to name a cat Tychicus someday. I think that's just a neat name, I, just to be reminded of him, I guess. So Aristarchus was from Macedonia, which is important, specifically from Thessalonica. We know that from Acts chapter 20, verse 4. He had been a member of the team accompanying Paul back to Jerusalem with the offering from the Gentile believers, taking it back to that beleaguered church. He was also present with Paul when that notorious riot broke out in Ephesus where they were going to kill Paul, and Paul exercised his rights as a Roman citizen, protecting himself and Aristarchus in the process from the unruly mob. And he reminded them, wait a minute, you can't do this to me, I'm a Roman citizen, and so they didn't. Um, And that, in fact, as we find out in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, he was personally accosted in that riot. And so he had suffered physically at the hands of the rioters who were outraged with Paul as to what he was doing, destroying their revenues and their idolatry and all the other things that were going on, disrupting the economy. That was how big of a deal that what Paul was doing there. He actually was disrupting the the economy in Ephesus with his preaching, and people were upset about it. We also find out from Acts 24 that he was still a part of the team traveling with Paul when a later... Uh, a plot of the Jews was formed against him in Greece, and they had to take evasive measures. He was also among Paul's companions on his fateful voyage as a prisoner to Rome in Acts 27 too, and thus faced the fierce storm that nearly cost all of them their lives. Other commentators have noted that Aristarchus also engaged in ministry on his own, leaving Paul um, uh, in the regards to the journey at Rome and went to Myra, but then again later rejoined Paul in Rome. He's also mentioned in Philemon 24. So what a life. What an adventure. What an amazing character we find in Aristarchus. He was involved in most of the more significant adventures that Paul had. Riots, shipwrecks, plots of assassination, all sorts of things going on. And here we have Aristarchus taking the time to send his greetings to the believers in Colossae. That's neat, isn't it? 
I think that's fun to know about. I'm intrigued by such types of things, and I think we ought to be as well. What we have here is a man who was a faithful minister of the gospel of Christ and faced a lot of turmoil, conflict, and personal peril, sending his greetings to these believers in Colossae, a dear friend apparently of Paul, one who would have supported Paul in his ministry, so we ought to be grateful to him for that, to be, have a have, have gratitude for the fact that he was there with Paul, was probably an encouragement to him and a friend to him, one who would help him keep going if, as, you, as it were. I think that's quite significant. He had stood with Paul through thick and thin. I think that's what we take away from the character of Aristarchus, a friend who stands by you through thick and thin, a true friend in the ministry. That's important. We all need that, don't we? We need those types of people in our lives, ones who come alongside and encourage and press and push and say, stick to it, keep going, do it. A person who was willing to sacrifice his own life, apparently. Um, These types of events that they were involved in, these plots and these riots and these shipwrecks, they were significant. And we know from the accounts that we have in the book of Acts, we're not going to take the time to go back and read them all. It would take most of the morning to do that, but they were dramatic. And the things that he would have witnessed would have been quite dramatic as well in terms of seeing firsthand the life of Paul unfolding before him, knowing who Paul had been before God saved him, watching and seeing how God used Paul in a mighty way and how he also then would use Aristarchus for the propagation of the gospel. It's interesting, too, that Paul refers to him as a fellow prisoner. There's some disagreement amongst commentators about whether or not Aristarchus was actually imprisoned with Paul. This phrase prisoner can also be, or fellow prisoner is, is, is sometimes used to convey the sense or the idea that he was engaged with him in ministry although there are some who hold the position that he may have voluntarily imprisoned himself with Paul to be an encouragement to him, to keep his spirits up. Um, And there are many who think that is the likely case here. But nonetheless, in some ways, the relationship was significant enough that Paul would refer to him as a fellow prisoner, one who then was able to help meet Paul's needs or who would be able to pass on information and messages to others that Paul cared about and perhaps was able to come and go from where Paul was at and convey information to Paul's friends and colleagues and other people involved in ministry with him. So again, I think the information that we have about Aristarchus is intriguing and an encouragement to us and should encourage us to be that same kind of person. We are given these examples oftentimes in scriptures, to be imitated, to have as an example of a, of a quality Christian life. Now, I'm not saying that any of you should leave here today and go volunteer to be in the Ohio State Penitentiary. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Paul or Aristarchus would encourage either. But nonetheless, he was so concerned about gospel ministry and what Paul was doing and the opportunities that he was willing to make these kinds of personal sacrifices and that's significant. And I think it's significant, too, that he was associated with Paul, who is an apostle. And so he understood what Paul's ministry and calling was and knew the significance of that and was willing to personally make a sacrifice to ensure that Paul would be able to do those things. 
even to the point of personal imprisonment, perhaps, to be an encouragement to him in that context. And I think we need to be mindful of that as we consider others who are involved in ministry opportunities as well, the ways that we can help them that way. Well, Paul goes on to write here that he sends his greetings, and then we move on to Barnabas, uh, Barnabas's cousin, Mark, which is quite uh, significant in regards to this characterization. There's a, quite a history between Paul and Barnabas, isn't there? Um, they had words over this very person, Mark. At one point in time, Mark was going to go with them on a missionary journey, and Barnabas wanted to take him with him, and Paul said, absolutely not. You're not taking him. He's not ready. He's not prepared. He's proven himself to be fickle. He doesn't stick to it. We're not taking him. And the account is such that we are told that there were sharp words exchanged between Paul and Barnabas over that issue, and they broke fellowship for a while, and Barnabas and Mark went off on their way, and Paul left without them. That's significant. And so here we are, I believe, some 10 years removed from those events. And Paul is making certain to mention both of these people. Now, there's a reason for this. There are some commentators who believe that the dispute between Paul and Barnabas was well known amongst the churches, that that information had found its way, as we all know. Rumor flies, right? And so this rumor, this story about what happened between Paul and Barnabas was probably commonly known amongst many people. And many believe that what Paul is doing here is making an effort to let other people know that everything is okay, that everything is fine between he and Barnabas and Mark. And he wants to make certain that whatever happened between the two of them does not become a stigma or a bar to gospel opportunity. And so he's making certain that people know that things are fine, things are okay. You know who Barnabas is, they would have been familiar with him, and they knew who Mark was. And in fact, it's interesting that in the parenthetical, apparently there is some other writing, which we do not have, some other form of instruction, be it verbal or writing, perhaps Tychicus or Onesimus passed this on, we don't know. But there were some additional instructions that are given with regard to Mark, and he wants to make certain that if he does come, to welcome him. He is a brother in Christ. He is a co-laborer for the gospel. What that says to us is that we shouldn't allow disputes that arise between us to become barriers to gospel ministry, that we need to extend grace and to be gracious. By extending grace to Barnabas and Mark, Paul here opens doors for them both to be engaged in ministry which is significant. I guess we could say that grace required may become grace extended. And we see that here. And we find, too, that Paul's opinion of John Mark had changed, so we find, too, that, that Mark had grown. Now, I don't think that, you know, my position on the whole issue between Paul and Barnabas is that Barnabas was wrong that Mark was not spiritually mature enough to be engaged in the ministry in which Paul was involved so much so that he was an impediment, that he was a distraction, that he was causing problems, that he wasn't spiritually mature enough yet to handle either the intensity or the rigors or the requirements, the qualifications for being involved in that level of ministry. 
it was difficult enough. What we find is that Paul was concerned so much so that he was not going to allow him to come and was willing and prepared to sacrifice his friendship with Barnabas in order to make certain that the gospel opportunity was preserved. He didn't want it to be capitulated or, or vanquished in any way by what would be characterized by Mark's immaturity and Barnabas's facilitation of it. And so that's significant. And so what we find then here, too, is Paul guarding the gospel, not allowing personal acquaintances and friendships to usurp what God had called him to do, and that ultimately Mark matures enough to the point where he is of service to um, Paul. Paul would make reference in other passages about sending Mark to me, he's of good service to me now, things of that nature. Obviously, we understand that Paul and Barnabas had a relationship that was restored. And now we have here um, that uh, Mark uh, is now referenced as one who is also sending on his greetings to this church. That would have been an encouragement, an encouragement both from the standpoint of uh, the fact that this relationship had been restored and that these folks cared enough to say hello to the folks in Colossae. It's interesting, too, that what we find here as we work through these characters that Paul is noting, that it's quite the varied cast, is it not? You apparently have Aristarchus, who is kind of, in my mind, the, he's bold, he's, he's, he's willing, he's able, he's fearless, a trusty companion, a stalwart fellow minister in the gospel, one who can trust and stand next to through thick and thin. You've got Mark, who was the waffler, wayfaring, kind of immature Christian who didn't do a good job, but that God matured and used and brought along and now is part and parcel of this. We see how God uses and works through people in time. I think it's significant that time was needed, and I think we all need to be attentive to that as well. We know, too, that Mark... Um, is the likely author of the gospel that bears his name. Um, Either that or he was writing down what Peter told him in the terms of his own account. Um, There's some disagreement over that, but it was likely he was involved in some significant way in that. It's interesting, too, that Mark is identified as Barnabas' cousin. He could have just said Mark, but again, I think the point here being is that he wanted to make certain that folks understood that things were fine between he and Barnabas. He wanted to make certain that his reputation was intact. Um, and he wanted to make it clear that uh, things were probably, or were, were in fact back on uh, even, even turf. Well, Paul goes on to talk about the fact that um, there are others um, that are involved in this. We can move on to verse 11. We find that we have a a character here named Justice. His name is Jesus, who is called Justice. It wasn't uncommon for a person to have uh, kind of a Greek name as well, along with their native name. And perhaps it's used as well to clarify that this is not Jesus Christ, but Jesus who is Justice, not to make it any less confusing. We find, too, that Paul makes reference. We don't know much about Justice. There's not much said about him. Um, in regards to uh, his life and his um, ministry, um, in regards to what he did or where he was from or the things of that nature. 
Um, we just simply know here that he was with him, and um, there's some reference to uh, him in other portions, perhaps in Acts chapter 1, verse 23, um, but um, we're not clear about that as well, if it's the same person or not. Nonetheless, he was a minister that was engaged with Paul in some context, and he wanted to send his greetings on to these folks as well. It's interesting then, too, what Paul says about them here at the end of verse 11. And this passage is, uh, in some respects, a little confusing at times to folks, but I think it's pretty simple once you begin to break it down. He says, These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Now, is Paul saying that these are the only Jews who ever helped him in ministry? No. But it's likely that these are three individuals, Jewish individuals, who were with Paul and were engaged with him locally in whatever ministry he was involved in while he was in Rome. Um, And they were laboring with him currently in Rome is the way to better understand that passage. Um, And so we see then that these folks were converts who were witnessing now for Christ and engaged in ministry opportunity in Rome prepared to make sacrifice of their own life. That was not an easy thing to do. To, to be talking about Jesus Christ in Rome was a big deal, and you paid heavily for that. Um, and again, what I think is significant about these people is the fact that they had no concern for their personal well-being, apparently, that they were prepared to sacrifice all for the service of Christ. Well, we get into then verse 12, and we find a character here that we know quite well, One's who, one who has been familiar to us from the book of Colossians, Epaphras. Epaphras, verse 12, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. And so we find here that Paul now makes reference again to Epaphras and the significance of his ministry. We've met him, of course, in chapter 1, verse 7. His life to me is amazing. He's a convert, most likely, from Ephesus, having heard Paul preach there, who then goes out responds to the call of ministry and becomes a minister in Colossae and likely in Laodicea and Heropolis as well. We find out then that as he's laboring in this church, he has a good reputation of being a fine pastor, a good minister of the word. He's taught the people well. Paul comes or Paul writes to a church that's not immature, but rather a church that's rather mature spiritually. They are well-grounded in faith, hope, and love. Um, and, and Paul is, is writing to them to be, to be reminding them of the fact that they are indeed of, of significance to him and to Epaphras as well. And this salutation here points that out for us also. We understand that he uh, traveled a long distance. That is so amazing to me. I can't wait to talk to him about that and ask him about that. What was that like? That's a long ways. There were no Ubers. You know, you couldn't Uber a chariot. You know, travel was difficult. And it's likely that he walked most of it. 
perhaps some passage by sea, we don't know for certain, but it was a long, long distance and would have taken him a very long time. But he was so concerned about what was going on in Colossae with this false teacher and the error that had crept in that he went there to deal with that. That's significant. And of course, Paul then, based upon the information he received from Epaphras, would then write this epistle and others as well. He's one of the number of the congregation. He's one of them. He had been a citizen of Colossae um, and had been planted there by God's providence to be a minister of the gospel as well as surrounding areas. Paul says he's a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That's an interesting designation and something that Paul often uses to refer to himself and other ministers of the gospel. Here Paul is indicating that Epaphras is fully given over to the ministry, fully committed to it, that he does not value his life to any great degree, that he is prepared to do all that his master Jesus Christ has called him to do and willingly does it. He is bound to him. He's a bondservant, one who is serving another, not doing his own will, but the will of another person. That's something that's significant. We need to keep that in mind. Paul in Philippians 1.1 designates both himself and Timothy's as, Timothy as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And Paul again in, in Colossians 1.7 refers to Epaphras as a fellow bondservant. We all understand too that Christ himself took the form of a bondservant in Philippians 2.7. And thus it is the proper station of every follower of his. That's, that's important. We're no different than Epaphras. We are all bond servants of Jesus Christ. We're not doing our own will. We shouldn't be. When we do, that's sin. But we do the will of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Now, we don't do it out of begrudging obligation, but we do it out of gratitude. We do it out of gratitude. Remembering what it is that he has done for us, how he took us out of that domain of darkness, how he brought us into life. When we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he saved us. He saved us. He gave us life. And so these people are so um, convinced of the finished work of Christ that they're willing to call themselves this type of phrase. And this bond slave metaphor language here is indicative of the lowest type of slave, the doulos, the, the lowest of the low, one who would not esteem himself higher than his master in any context. I think sometimes we have to be careful with the language because there can be an overemphasis on the idea of a begrudging obligation to serve or a constant obligation to serve in order to gain merit. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not the issue at all, and we have to be very careful about that because there are some who do that. The emphasis on the word slave can become such, to such a point where a person is overwhelmingly concerned about their own performance in order to gain the favor of Christ. We don't want to be there. Michael Horton has written a book called Christ the Lord, and he deals with that issue and the perils that are associated with falling into the error of, of looking to that issue to the point where you are overwhelmed and overcome by the idea of always acting as a slave, which becomes tedious and burdensome. 
I don't think that this, par- this language is used in Scripture for us to give us some sense of, of begrudging obligation, but rather to show and to get, indicate for us a selling out, if you will, a giving over, a complete, a complete surrender of any claim or possession of our own to Christ, I think is the significance of that. And here, I think for Paul, he's wanting to make certain that we understand that Epaphras was indeed a very faithful minister of Christ. It's a accommodation, if you will. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, uh, a way of indicating that Epaphras was doing his job. And that's a good thing. Um, that's a good thing. The idea here then is that Epaphras is one who would yield himself to another's will for the benefit of someone else. That's the idea here. Epaphras is involved in ministry not for his own benefit, not for his own glory, but to glorify Christ and to be a benefit to others is ultimately the idea behind the reference to the bondservant, bondslave picture. Now we understand then that Paul reminds the Colossian believers of the faithfulness of their pastor who is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Perhaps Paul witnessed this in Epaphras' life, being with him in some context. Epaphras says Paul is laboring earnestly. The idea that's behind the language in the Greek here is that Paul is using a Greek word to describe someone as competing for a prize in an athletic contest or engaging another in a battle with weapons. The idea here is that Epaphras was truly engaged in a serious effort with regard to his prayers for these Colossi believers whom he loved deeply. And he was engaged in this activity on a fairly continual basis. And again, uh, these are the indicatives of a, of a faithful minister of the gospel. A pastor who cares about his congregation, praying for them, is significant. As we look at what Paul says about him, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Again, the grammatical structure of the passage indicates that this is something that Epaphras was doing on a regular basis, that that it was something that he was intentionally engaged in. Now, it's interesting, too, that what we find out he was praying about. Pay attention to this. Now, friends, you need to pay very close attention to what Epaphras was doing. That you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. That's what he's praying for. Now, again... When I look at the content of the prayers in the book of Colossians, I am absolutely struck by it. I am struck by their content. We find in Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 11, that Paul is praying that the Colossians would grow in their understanding and knowledge of the things of God, and that their joy would be full in Christ, and he's praying for that. We find in Colossians 4, 2, that Paul is praying for them in a way that, that, that he's asking that they would pray for him and that he's praying as well in the context of them having a deeper understanding of their salvation and that there would be gospel opportunities open for them. And now we find Epaphras praying and we find that what he's praying for is similar. He's praying in his prayers that they may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. 
Now, now again, I think it's, it's striking to me what he's praying about. Now, we don't have anything here that indicates that he's going through a, a long list of personal felt needs and conditions that need to be addressed. Rather, he's concerned about the fact that they're understanding God's Word and growing in it. Growing in it. Paul says, laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Like Paul in Colossians 1.9, Epaphras is praying that they would have a deeper understanding of God's word because as you delve into the depths of God's word, your love for Christ grows, you better understand his will for your life, you're more encouraged, you're more exhorted, you're more joyful, you have greater zeal for the things of Christ, and you want to tell other people about that. That's, that's what's going on here. He's not saying that the economy should get better or that their health should improve. Not that there's anything wrong with pr- for praying about those things, but the priority of his prayer is not that focus. It's not that focus. This can be a challenge in the context of ministry because it's often said that, and Alistair Begg said this one time at a conference that I attended, he said, unfortunately, churches are looking for pastors who give better hugs in the hallway than are rather engaged in the exhortation of God's Word. That's what people want. There's nothing wrong with a hug in a hallway, but that's not the primary responsibility of a pastor. And what we find here is the prioritization of what the pastor's role and obligation is. Even absent from the congregation, Epaphras is still engaged in what a pastor is called to do. My prayer for you, and when I became the pastor here, I said that my hope and my my prayer to the Lord was that he would enable me to preach and teach the gospel and the word of God to you in such a way that you would become grounded and settled in his word and that you would love Jesus Christ more. We find here that Paul is reminding through this letter that Epaphras is still laboring in that way for these dear believers in Colossae. That would have been a great encouragement to them. It's interesting to me that in this paragraph of encouragement, that that is considered encouraging. That's, that's, that's remarkable to me. He's not talking about the politics of the day. He's not talking about the economy of the day, the price of grain, the cost of candles, the illnesses that were obviously prevalent, injuries or illnesses within the church, which are most certainly going to be there in this time frame. We just know that from history. But he's concerned about their depth. He's concerned about their knowledge of the will of God, which is contained in his word. That's what he cares about. That's what he's concerned about. Because why? That is of eternal consequence. Eternal consequence. This should be an encouragement to you as well in order to help you to understand how to better pray for people. What the content and the focus of your prayers ought to be. We're finding in the book of Colossians that the content of the prayers that are given here are strikingly different than what we often hear. We need to be attentive to that. 
Well, there's much more that we can say about Epaphras, and we will. Lord willing, as we continue through the balance of this, I'm going to end things here because of a transition that I want to make um, in verse 13 um, as it relates to Epaphras' deep concern. Paul says in verse 13, For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Now, there's a reason for that deep concern has a lot to do with false teachers who are present in all three of those churches. We understand later on that Laodicea ends up with a fairly bad reputation, do they not? The lukewarm church in Revelation 3. And so we have much that we can talk about, and we'll get into that as we, Lord willing, continue through this passage. But again, I think what we find in these passages is an opportunity to be encouraged by others who have gone before us as models of the Christian faith, people who we can imitate. People say, well, what does a Christian do? Well, we find out here that they do these types of things. They're engaged in ministry opportunities, gospel opportunities, encouraging others who are in ministry, coming alongside, being there, helping, aiding, pushing forward for the proclamation of the gospel. That's what we find with these folks in the balance of this chapter. We'll leave it there, and we'll gather together again, Lord willing, and continue with this examination of this passage. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for these dear friends of the faith. Thank you for the fact that you've kept their names in front of us through all the ages, and that that today, here in Beloit, Ohio, we are talking about them. This is amazing. And what you do and how you do it is always shocking to us, and we're overwhelmed and overcome by the fact that you would see fit to keep these folks in front of us Help us to be mindful and and caring about those who are engaged in the ministry opportunities that are presented. May we come alongside and be an aid to those who are engaged in those things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.